You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 9, 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed and turning to the body he said Tabitha arise and she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up then calling the saints and the widows he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner this is the word of God You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father Almighty, as we now open your perfect word, please empower your people to tell the gospel story to recount your wondrous deeds which shine light on your glorious and holy character. Lord Jesus Christ, empower your people to announce the good news that you have brought to earth the life of heaven. That you have sacrificed yourself for sinners. That you have been raised from the dead and exalted as Lord over all creation. Holy Spirit, empower us to live in light of the gospel, declaring its truth with our words and demonstrating this truth through our actions. Give us love for you and love for one another. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Every year, Forbes magazine publishes a list called The World's Most Powerful People. This is how the article containing the most recent list begins. Quote, There are nearly 7.5 billion humans on planet Earth, but these 75 men and women make the world turn. 
Forbes' annual ranking of the world's most powerful people identifies one person out of every 100 million whose actions mean the most. Forbes then outlines the criteria they use to determine who makes the list. And here are the four factors they consider. First, they ask whether the candidate has power over lots of people. Second, they assess the financial resources controlled by each person. Third, they determine if the candidate is powerful in multiple spheres. And finally, they make sure the candidates actively use their power. According to Forbes... Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the Communist Party in China, is the most powerful person in the world. Vladimir Putin is number two. President Trump is number three. Angela Merkel is number four. And Jeff Bezos is number five. Friends, think about Forbes' criteria again. And how silly it is in light of what Scripture reveals about Jesus Christ. First, they ask whether the candidate has power over lots of people. About the crucified and risen Christ, Paul writes, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Second, they assess the financial resources controlled by each person. Again, Paul writes to the Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Third, they determine if the candidate is powerful in multiple spheres. In what we know as the Great Commission, Matthew records, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Fourth, they make sure the candidates actively use their power. In 1 Corinthians 15, Scripture records, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Brothers and sisters, we are far too easily bewitched by the illusion of earthly power. We stand in awe before technological masterminds and put our hope in political leaders and we are paralyzed with fear at the threats of dictatorial world leaders. But then we show up to church and we yawn when we sing, O oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His power and His love, our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O oh, tell of His might, 
O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, whose chariots of wrath the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Frail, frail children of dust, and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Here is my primary aim this morning, brothers and sisters. I am pleading with the Holy Spirit to awaken us to the power and majesty of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that as we behold the majesty of Christ, the illusion and the seduction of worldly power will come crashing to the ground. Last week, we concluded our study with verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. Look at it again with me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This sets the stage for what we encounter in the text today. Notice how the church is described. The church had peace. Stephen's execution led to a season of persecution that's now come to an end, at least for the time being. Followers of Jesus are no longer being harassed by the Jewish authorities. The text also says the church is being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We have the biblical imagery of the body of Christ as a building, and God is working in each member to fortify and strengthen the whole structure the people of God are walking in reverence before him. The Spirit is comforting them as they grow together. We could say it this way. The early church was marked by worshipful obedience. And God was continuing to sovereignly multiply their number. Now, don't forget, don't forget the main event that ushered in this time of peace and growth for the church. The one who was relentlessly persecuting followers of Jesus and trying to stop the preaching of Jesus was gloriously converted. Saul met Jesus and he was profoundly and completely changed forever. In fact, this is the first of three ways Christ's power is displayed in Acts chapter 9. That's what we'll look at in the remainder of our time this morning. Three Three ways Christ's power is displayed in Acts chapter 9. First, we see Christ's power over disobedience. That was the first 31 verses of this chapter. Because we've already walked through Luke's initial record of Saul's conversion, I won't do it again this morning. But I do want to rehearse God's miraculous transformation of Saul by simply reading one of the other two accounts the book of Acts contains. Saul's conversion to Jesus Christ is so significant that Luke records it three times. Again, the first we've already seen. The second is found in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 12, where Paul, as he is now known, is preaching before a Jewish crowd. And the third is found four chapters later in Acts 26. Turn there with me. Acts 26. Paul is on trial, appearing before King Agrippa. And he shares his testimony of faith in Christ. 
Okay, think about the reality of what's happening here. Okay, this is the most notorious persecutor of Christians. Now he's appearing before King Agrippa. And he takes the opportunity not to shrink back in fear, but to say, listen, let me just tell you what happened to me. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In describing the mission that Jesus has given him, Paul explains the reality of the new birth that he has now personally experienced. God opened Paul's eyes to see the darkness of his sin and his desperate need for Jesus. He needed to be delivered from the power of Satan, and the only way this could happen is by means of a greater power. The power of the resurrected Christ, who alone can forgive sins and give a justified and cleansed sinner a place in the community of God's people. Those who enjoy fellowship with God only through Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what happened to Paul. He experienced a new birth, was given a new mission, and was joined to a new family. This, this is what he chooses to tell the king as he appears before him. There is no person, there is no person who has ever lived who has possessed the ability to solve their own sin problem. A sinner can only be redeemed, forgiven, and made new through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ alone has the power to save. Christ alone has power over disobedience. No matter the depth and severity of sin, Christ's resurrection power is sufficient to rescue and regenerate the worst sinner. And, and that's what Paul testifies to. 
So if you're here this morning and you've never experienced this, this transformation, this new birth, you've never turned from the darkness of your sin and rebellion against God to embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope for forgiveness, then I would plead with you this morning to turn to Jesus. Rely on His mercy. Rely on His kindness. Admit your sin. Trust in His loving sacrifice. Believe that He died in your place so that you could be made right with God. Christ has power over disobedience. Second, I want you to see Christ's power over disease. Look at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. You'll notice that the main character switches from Saul or Paul to Peter. And Peter was mentioned last in chapter 8, verse 25, where he was preaching the gospel in many villages. And Luke portrays Peter as an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ. The, the signs he'll perform are the signs of a true apostle. But, but let me pause before we look at this first miracle, because amidst the miracles that Peter does, I don't want you to miss something incredibly important. Peter's primary ministry was evangelism. Peter's primary ministry was evangelism. Remember all the way back to the beginning of the book. And, and what we've consistently found Peter doing, it's, it's summarized well by his interaction with, with Simon back in chapter 8. Verse 20, the text says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This is what we find Peter doing all throughout the book of Acts. He was consumed with the task of evangelism. He longed for sinners to repent and turn to Christ in faith. But beyond the work of evangelism, Peter gave himself as well to discipleship. Helping believers grow and mature in the faith. This is, this is why he is coming to the saints in verse 32. So Peter's primary task as an apostle was not to wow people by doing miracles. But it was to labor hard in the ministry of the word and prayer. This is how the church is built up. This is how the church multiplies. Friends, this has been the strategy from the earliest days of the church, and it hasn't changed one bit. Make disciples, and then mature disciples who can make and mature more disciples. I was thinking about this as I've been walking through this whole book, but in particular at this moment, and I thought, you know, as a church, to be honest, we need to do a better job of this, especially as pastors. 
we need to do a better job of leading this church to do what is most important. Redeemer Bible Church exists to make and mature disciples who will make and mature more disciples. And everything we do as a church should clearly point toward that primary aim. We should be equipping you constantly as church members to engage in this most important work. And so I would, I would ask you genuinely to pray. Pray for your elders that God would give us clarity of vision as we think about what is it? What is it that we should be giving our time and attention and effort to? And giving us the discipline to do that well, to do it better than we have been doing it. Evangelism and discipleship are the primary activities Peter is engaged in as he travels to Lydda. But this doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus, Jesus might have some plans to display his power in other unexpected ways, right? So look at verse 33. There he, Peter, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. We don't find out a about this man other than he has a name and an illness. His name is Aeneas and he's been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. The text tells us just enough to make sure we see this event as a clear revelation of Christ's power. Verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. I don't know about you, when I read this, it feels a little understated. Right? Peter's interaction with this paralyzed man amounts to one announcement and two commands. First, Peter announces with a verb in the present tense that Jesus, Israel's Messiah, is healing Aeneas at the very moment Peter is speaking. To heal in the name of Jesus was to involve the power and presence of the resurrected Christ, making it clear, as the little note in the ESV study Bible says, that the whole point of this miraculous event is to show that, quote, Jesus is invisibly building his church. So friends, this is not the work of Peter. He is simply an instrument of God to magnify the glory and power of Jesus Christ. After Peter's initial announcement, he delivers a command. He tells Aeneas to get up. So we understand what Peter's doing here. He's ordering Aeneas to do something that only divine power can make possible. And then his second command is make your bed. I love I. Howard Marshall's comment here. He says his action would indicate the reality of the cure. What else would you tell somebody? Peter hasn't turned into Aeneas' mother, commanding him to make his bed and tidy up his room. No, Peter is shining a spotlight on the reality of the cure. Aeneas can only make his bed if he isn't paralyzed anymore. He gets up and makes his bed because he can. And Peter wants everybody to see this. So, so how can we know why this miracle took place? What in the text exposes the reason behind the miracle? Well, look at verse 35. 
and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, the area stretching north, saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Do you see how God is orchestrating events to bring maximum attention to the person and work of Jesus? What could God do to make Jesus Christ unignorable? What could God do to make sure the power of Christ was undeniable? Well, how about for starters, God radically interrupts the evil mission of a man who hated Jesus and anyone who identified with Jesus, and through an encounter with Jesus, this man becomes a passionate preacher of Jesus. That would be a pretty good place to start, wouldn't it? Then God sends Peter to the bedside of a man who everyone knows is paralyzed, and he's been bedridden for eight years, and with five words, and in about five seconds, the man is standing up making his bed. Saul's conversion and Peter's miracle have served to display the power of Jesus Christ. And hopeless and hungry sinners begin looking to Jesus for hope. The Great Commission is being fulfilled as the gospel is spreading and the church is growing. Notice how much different this is, friends, than prosperity preachers in the present day who are building their own kingdom, drawing as much attention as they can to themselves. They're in it for selfish and sinful gain. It's the exact opposite of what you find here. Peter is doing a miracle. The Holy Spirit is working in power so that Christ is magnified. Christ has power over disobedience and disease. Finally, I want you to notice that Christ has power over death. Look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Little was about 25 miles from Jerusalem, and now Peter has traveled another 11 miles toward the coast to Joppa. In Joppa, he encounters a woman named Tabitha. Tabitha is known for her generosity. And this is not the first time in the book of Acts that we've encountered a follower of Jesus who is known for being generous, is it? No, this has been a hallmark of the early church. They abounded in generosity. Brothers and sisters, I want to say this plainly. There are few things a church could be known for that as clearly display the truth of the gospel as being truly generous to those in need. Look at verse 37. In those days, Tabitha became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since little was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Because Tabitha had died, her body was washed in accordance with the Jewish custom of purification of the dead. But it's unclear why, it's unclear why some of the disciples called for Peter. But it turns out to be a really good decision. Look at verse 39. 
So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Friends, I love scenes like this in Scripture where we're reminded of the humanity of those we read about. These are real people, real believers. These are our brothers and sisters who we will someday meet. In a sense, this is a church just like ours, where there were people who were in need. And there were others who the Spirit stirred to go and serve them in practical ways. It's a touching scene. As Peter arrives, he finds widows weeping. As they begin showing him articles of clothing that Tabitha made for them. The widows are grieving because someone they loved has died. But even more, someone who truly loved them has died. Tabitha gave herself to what James calls pure and undefiled religion. This is an amazing scene. And brothers and sisters, don't, don't ever underestimate the impact of small and seemingly insignificant acts of kindness. Right? There is no great spiritual gifting that is required for you to be kind and thoughtful and selfless. These are things that don't usually show up on a spiritual gift survey. But they glorify God. They glorify God and they deeply impact the lives of real people. And they build up the body of Christ. As I was reading this story, I, I thought about the last 17 years of, of ministry involved in different churches. And I thought the, the moments where I have been impacted most deeply those things that I'll, I'll never forget are primarily acts of kindness and generosity that were totally unexpected. But the Spirit moved in, in a brother's heart or a sister's heart, and they came and they made themselves a, a little vulnerable in a place like that. And they said, you have a need, and I want to serve you. No one knew there was no attention drawn to their act of kindness or generosity. It was just one of those things where you thought, this, this, this is what James is talking about. Pure and undefiled. There's something so beautiful about this. Look with me at verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Let me give you two brief observations here. First, this scene is strikingly similar to an Old Testament story involving Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. In fact, I want you to listen to what the text says. As Elisha kneels before the, the dead body of a Shunammite woman's son, this is what it says. 
When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Like Elisha, Peter found himself in a situation where he was completely dependent upon God. Kneeling next to Tabitha's body, Peter prays, not having any advanced knowledge of what God is going to do. But he calls out to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is alive and that Jesus alone possesses the power to bring life. So he prays by faith. Here's the second observation. One wonders if Peter, as he entered the room where Tabitha lay, did he think about Jesus and Jairus' daughter? Since he arrived after Tabitha had died, did he, did he think about Lazarus? Whatever Peter may have been thinking, he knew Jesus had power over death. And so he acts in faith. Look midway through verse 40 and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. In Mark 5, Jesus commands Jairus' daughter, arise. In John 11, Jesus commands Lazarus, come out. Here in Acts 9, Peter, the servant of Jesus, acting in the power of Jesus, simply says, Tabitha, arise. And she does. Like the miracle. How can we know why this has happened? What in the text reveals the reason behind Peter's second miracle? Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. As we close, I want you to consider what has transpired in the last chapter of Acts. A terrorist has been radically saved and is now passionately preaching the gospel. The church is at peace and growing. A paralyzed man stood up for the first time in eight years, fully recovered. And a dead woman was brought back to life. You could say that Jesus has the power to really turn things around, couldn't you? In fact, when one of my favorite preachers preached this text, this is how he closed his sermon. And this is how we'll close this morning. He said, 
Now, my own conviction is that Jesus is just as much alive today as in the book of Acts. And he means to do a lot more things like this today than we are willing to see or receive. He has surprises in store for this world and for your life and ministry that you have never dreamed. So what should we do, he asked. And then he answered, rest. Rest in the eye of his love and care. Tremble at the wind of his holy power. And be on the alert in your life and in the world for utterly amazing inbreakings of his might to turn things around. Let there be in your life an open ended expectancy that Jesus is going to act, he is going to turn things around. And when he does, rejoice. So brother or sister, brother or sister in a struggling marriage or with a wayward child or or battling a besetting sin or overcome with fear and anxiety or or longing for the salvation of, of a loved one or a friend, Let there be in your life an open-ended expectancy that Jesus is going to act. For those praying for the unreached peoples of the world, and for those praying for nations in desperate need of Jesus, and for those believers in China and North Korea and Myanmar who are being persecuted, Let there be in your life an open-ended expectancy that Jesus is going to act. For those pleading with God to work in power through this church, for deeper relationships and more joyful fellowship and more sacrificial service, for those praying that that God will bring greater unity here and, and praying that we will see greater fruit Let there be in your life an open-ended expectancy that Jesus is going to act. Let this text remind you. Let it remind you that Christ is powerful. He is infinitely powerful. He is also eternally loving. Let this fuel your life. Let it inform the way you walk forward in faith. 